Welcome to the relaunch of Mountain State Views. I'm your host, Stephen Allen Adams. I'm a state government reporter for Ogden Newspapers in West Virginia. That's the Parkersburg News and Sentinel, the Wheeling Intelligencer and News Register, the Weirton Daily Times, the Intermountain and Elkins, and the Journal in Martinsburg. And thank you so much for listening and downloading this podcast. If you're new here, definitely glad to have you. If you listened to the previous version of Mountain State Views, we're definitely glad to have you. Had to step away from it for a little while just because, you know, podcasts are labor intensive, but I've been hearing from a lot of people that they really would like to see Mountain State Views come back and want to have something to listen to in their cars that's uh, political in nature that's fun to listen to. I don't know if this is fun to listen to or not, but some people think it is, and I'm happy to oblige. And I figured the best way to come back is with a series. And we are doing a series on the Republican candidates for governor in West Virginia. Now, there are several of them. We are going to focus on the top four. These are the top four that are typically getting attention in polling, and these are the top four that have the most money going into their races. These top four are people that do have interest in their campaigns. They're either self-funding or they have a number of interested people donating to their campaigns. And we are going to start with Delegate Moore Capito, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. We're starting with him because he's chronologically the first person I did interview. So I think that's fair. But also, he's definitely at least in the top two of candidates that tend to poll higher in polls. Right now, it's a race between Capito, who is the son of U.S. Senator Shelley Moore Capito, and Attorney General Patrick Morrissey. This is a series on all four, though, and it's a public policy series. So we're not going to ask a whole bunch of fluffy questions or esoteric questions. We're going to ask about public policy. We're going to ask about how they want to make a dent in the state's bad poverty statistics, which really kind of color all of our bad statistics. How do we make a dent in those numbers and provide opportunity for West Virginians? Education. How do we improve our educational attainment? The state budget. We're bringing in record tax revenue surpluses. But should we be? It's a valid question to ask the next governor because the next governor sets the state budget and the revenue estimates. But we ask a number of questions that I think uh, we get really interesting answers to from these candidates. And I think you'll find them interesting too and really help you hone in on who you would want to have the Republican nomination for governor in 2024. So I've rambled on here enough. Let's get to the interview. This is Delegate Moore Capito. Thank you, Delegate Moore Capito, for joining me today. I really appreciate you giving me your time, especially since you've been on the road really most of this summer and even in the in the spring, just getting around the state and letting people get to know you. Absolutely. Thank you for having us on, Stephen. It's always good to be with you here, and you're exactly right. We've been we've been barnstorming this summer, so it's been fun. We've been making it to all different parts of the state, talking to so many uh, West Virginians, of course. We've had a lot of uh, tire rotations and uh, oil changes, but uh, that hadn't stopped us from getting out there. I think we're up near 20,000 miles now. Oh, wow. Well, this is going to be the first of our Governor Q&As, which, of course, this is part of our podcast, Mountain State Views. It's also part of print interviews that we're going to be uh, doing, so be on, a, on the lookout for that as well. But we're asking all of the candidates for governor the same public policy questions. And I know people are probably like, it's a little bit too soon for public policy. I know the, the key right now is getting out, getting to know voters, getting out 
out to know uh, key people in the state and, and getting the word out. But I do think people are somewhat curious about where people stand on uh, specific issues. And I'm keeping them kind of broad because, uh, I mean, there's just so many issues to talk about. But my first question would be this. Republicans have held the legislative majority since 2015. Republicans hold all the Board of Public Works seats. And since Governor Jim Justice flipped parties, that's been in Republican party control. Since then, the state has seen tax revenue uh, increases. We now have the tax cuts, which are in effect uh, and ongoing right now. The unemployment rate in the state has dropped to historic lows. We've got, I think, around 19 years of continued drops in workers' compensation rates, tourism visits have increased, and so has the revenue from that. So really, particularly under a Republican legislature and a Republican governor, there's been a lot of good news that's come out. How does the next governor, whether that's you, whoever that is, I know you want that to be you, how does the next governor build off of those successes while making your own mark? Because obviously there's things that you want to do, and I know that there's things that you think could probably be improved upon, no criticism to prior administrations or, or, or any other uh, Republican lawmakers, but there's things that you want to do and you'll put your own mark on things. So how do you do that? Well, you know, we've had a, uh, a pretty good run here of late in the state of West Virginia. As you mentioned, all of those numbers and markers that we've seen in West Virginia are, compl- are very, very encouraging. Uh, we absolutely have to continue that. And, you know, under the leadership of, of Governor Justice, we've seen some of those numbers climb. We've seen, uh, you know, with the tax cuts that we've been able to put in place, uh, and the unemployment numbers that you mentioned. But all of those are a result of good public policy. And you said it might be t- early to talk about public policy, but public policy is important. Uh, that's really how you make change. And uh, you went back to starting when the Republicans gained uh, the majorities uh, back in 2015. And at that time, uh, we really put our conservative credentials uh, to the test. And it was maybe a leap of faith because we were talking about, you know, 80, 80 plus years of Democratic uh, control. And so we were it was the first opportunities that Republicans had to put in place those conservative principles uh, that we that we thought would lead to where we were today. In 2017, I came in and I'll tell you, I'm particularly proud that the results that we're seeing today Um, are because of the hard work that we've done in the legislature. And I'm particularly proud to have been a part of that. But none of that is possible without creating a good team. Uh, In 2020, I was proud to lead the legislative um, uh, committee that built the first uh, supermajority in the history of the state of West Virginia. It all starts with building a good team, but you have to be able to deliver results. And um, I think I've shown, my colleagues would, I, I believe, would tell you, and many of the people that I've been talking to across the state of West Virginia would tell you that I'm somebody that gets it done. I'm the get it done conservative in this race that's shown that we can put conservative principles in place and that they work. So we're going to need somebody in place that knows how it works and that has delivered for the people of West Virginia. Very good. Going to the next question here. Obviously, despite the successes, there are still long-term challenges in the states. So I think one of the biggest that really kind of affects Every little thing, whether you're talking about substance abuse, whether you're talking about jobs, whether you're talking about health, education, foster care system, a lot of it, I believe, kind of all gets connected back into poverty. And of course, West Virginia has always had a very high poverty rate. I think the most recent rankings that I have seen have showed West Virginia in the top five for, for poverty and West Virginia's in the top 10 for childhood poverty. How can the next governor begin to make a dent in these statistics and improve the lives of West Virginians? Opportunity is how we change that. More opportunity is going to lift more people up and that we've got to absolutely start with our public safety. 
We have to ensure that our communities are safe and that they're clean so that we can grow our communities back to what they once were. I'm a lifelong West Virginian. I can't think of a better place to have grown up. And of course, I've got skin in the game. I'm raising my kids here. So I'm a believer in what we are all about in the state of West Virginia. But we have to ensure that we have public safety in our communities. And I will tell you right now that I'll put on notice any human trafficker out there or any fentanyl dealer, they're going to face life in prison because you can't push that poison and corrupt our communities in the state of West Virginia. When we clean up our streets and make sure that they're safe, that's going to build economic opportunity because you're going to talk about employers and job creators. That is what employees want when they when they want to take a job. They want to go to an environment where they feel safe, where their children can feel safe, and where the streets are clean. So that's got to be absolutely step number one. Okay. Well, let's go to the next question. I'm a budget nerd. If you've read any of my stuff, you know I'm always constantly writing about the state budget and we've you know made a flat, a flat budget over the last I'd say five fiscal years plus we've had certainly increases in our tax revenue there's been natural growth there I think there's been potential especially since we've got some new uh, economic development projects that have been uh, coming in over the last couple of years bringing new employment in and that's certainly adding some more tax dollars into the system and the state of course just ended the most recent fiscal year with 1.8 billion dollars. But there is a question about whether this is a true tax surplus or whether revenue estimates are being kept artificially low. And as the governor sets the revenue estimates and presents the budget to the legislature and has line item veto. So whatever the legislature comes up with, the governor can certainly go through and uh, have his say one way or the other. Should the state be appropriating what it expects to bring in and spending that, which is what some people call for, or should the state continue to set revenue estimates low and bring in large surpluses and do supplemental appropriations, which is certainly what we've done the last couple of years? What are your thoughts on that? I think we always need to take a conservative approach. You know, we when, when we look at our uh, finances in West Virginia, just like many, many West Virginians look at, at at their finances every single day at the kitchen table, we have to start with taking a conservative approach to our budgeting. Um, and that means absolutely being sure what we believe is going to come into the state of West Virginia. And whatever comes on top of that is great. But, uh, you know, we it, it's not about artificially setting them low and coming in and appropriating or or right sizing. I think we actually have to take a realistic approach and a conservative approach to what our estimates are, um, so that we can absolutely at all times ensure for the people of the state of West Virginia that our financial house is in order. Okay. Well, also as the chief executive, the governor oversees a, a large bureaucracy. There's a lot of state employees here in West Virginia. I think we're looking at maybe uh, four increases in. Uh, in, in pay and salary that the, the governor, Governor Justice, has certainly been able to do with the help of the legislature uh, voting voting for that. But salaries still remain low compared to other states and even our neighboring states. And uh, you're seeing that kind of carry over into shortages that we're having with certified teachers, child protective service workers. And, and, and of course, most recently, the thing that a lot of people are eyeballing is the correctional officer and staff crisis right now. So how does the next governor address these challenges, especially for border counties, that compete with neighboring states for these jobs. What are your thoughts on, on on addressing not just pay, but just retaining high quality state employees? I think you have to take a holistic look and approach on how we are recruiting and maintaining an attractive, talented people to work in government. Uh, and it's always been my, uh, you know, as, as a kid, I always heard that, you know, that's a, that's a noble calling to serve your state. Uh, and of course, the first thing that we have to do before we talk about pay or anything like that is 
we have to ensure that folks that are working in the government have the ability to do the job that they were hired to do. So that means putting in the right tools in place to allow them to do their job, alleviating the stress points and the bottleneck of where it's, that's basically taking their attention away from what they're supposed to be doing, whether it's an educator that's spending less time educating and doing more, uh, spending more of their time doing something else. But we have to first make sure that, the, again, that the tools are in place for our folks to be able to do their job. Then let's make sure that we're accountable. And then let's make sure that we're competitive. Okay. Well, speaking of education, that's long been an issue mm-hmm. in the state. We've been at the bottom of a lot of rankings and reading in math here, especially most recently. I feel like looking at some of the rankings and some of the data that's came out, I mean, West Virginia certainly was already having issues before COVID-19. I feel like COVID-19 has sort of exacerbated some of those issues. Now, the legislature did do some important work this past session with the passage of the Third Grade Success Act, focusing on math, phonics education, and also providing funding for elementary, early elementary grades to be able to have assistance, to be able to help carry the load, allow the teachers to be able to focus on the students that need the most help in the classroom. How does the next governor keep working towards improving educational attainment for West Virginia's children, whether that be through the public school system or the now burgeoning, slowly growing uh, school choice system that we have in the state? I think the state needs to listen to parents. Uh, we, uh, I have been a supporter and continue to be a supporter of, of involving parents in their children's education because parents know best for their children. Uh, and that means including school choice and rising tides lifts all ships. Of course, we've put in some of some very forward thinking educational choice programs in the state of West Virginia that are just starting to take shapes. Those things take time. What is absolutely critical in the state of West Virginia is that we have to meet those markers that are really set, that we've known for a long time, that children learn to read until third grade. And then from third grade on, they read to learn. So we have to ensure, number one, early on, that we are hitting those metrics as close as we can and as best as we can. And once we start to hit step one, then we go to step two. What's the next level of progression? You know, it's not about throwing money at the problem. We absolutely have tried that before. That doesn't work. We have to ensure that our education in West Virginia for our children, we have accountability uh, and we have folks that are able to do their job. So I think that education is one of the biggest issues that we're going to face and that we continue to face and we have faced in the state of West Virginia And it also impacts, it's an economic development issue. You know, when employers are looking into the state of West Virginia, if they want to grow a business here or create a business here, or if a potential employee lives in a neighboring state and wants to come work for an employer that's already in West Virginia, I'm a parent of young children. What's the first question I'm going to ask? Where are my kids going to school? So it's very much an economic development matter as well. So it's critically important. You kind of addressed this earlier in a question, but I'm going to kind of circle back around to it. Uh, Drug overdose deaths in West Virginia are coming down, but they're obviously still high, but they're coming down from pandemic era highs, which is certainly good. But it's a big issue in West Virginia. And I know it's something as chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, it's certainly an issue that comes before your committee uh, a decent amount, especially in regards to the law enforcement angle of this. What steps need to be taken to both help those suffering from substance use disorder to be productive, uh, lead productive lives once again, and 
also what can be done on the state side dealing with law enforcement and the legal angle of this? Yeah, absolutely. The first thing we've got to do is crack down on the suppliers. We've absolutely got to stop these folks from bringing these toxins and poison, this fentanyl and meth into our communities. So we need to, again, I said it earlier, uh, fentanyl dealers in the state of West Virginia on notice. They should face life sentences, I believe. Get them off the streets. Let's clean up our streets. And then once we see those folks gone, the supply's not going to be there anymore. Crime is going to drop because so much of the crime that we see in our communities right now is associated with or connected to drugs in some way. We've been out talking to people in the state of West Virginia, around the state of West Virginia, conducting uh, public safety roundtables. We've been in uh, we've been in Clarksburg, in Martinsburg. Uh, we're going to Parkersburg next week. We were in uh, Boone County a couple weeks ago, and the one common denominator that we're seeing as it relates to public safety and cleaning up our streets are drugs. So we we've got to eradicate the suppliers that are bringing these these uh, these drugs in. Uh, to our state. And I think it absolutely has to start there. And once we get there, we have to uh, focus. Our communities are uh, one thing that one of the many things I love about West Virginia is that we are a community based uh, group of individuals. It doesn't matter in the state where you live. You value your community, you value your family. Um, And so our families will rise up to the challenge of getting folks back uh, into the communities. I believe, but we can't, it's cyclical. We can't keep dumping folks that have had issues back into a place where they can, uh, where they can, where those issues can recur so easily. West Virginia, of course, is known as an energy state. We're known for our coal, we're known for our natural gas, but the the legislature has worked hard over the last couple of years to make the state an all of the above energy state. We lifted the ban on nuclear energy. We've got, uh, of course, if you drive through Potomac Highlands, uh, Eastern Panhandle, you you see a lot of the wind farms. I just covered uh, First Energy's presentation on their solar projects that they have going on that they're putting on uh, the sites of uh, former ash ponds. So we got a lot of things we're doing. Form Energy, of course, in the Northern Panhandle is making batteries that could be used for grid energy storage for wind and solar power. So we are being kind of known as an all-above energy state, not just for our coal and, and natural gas, but there's been obviously some pushback on that for people that don't want to see us leave the coal industry and certainly the natural gas industry behind. So how does the next governor balance West Virginia's energy past with the future? As you said, Stephen, we're in all of the above state in West Virginia. But we know by all projections, whether it's from economic experts or economic uh, uh, energy experts or economic experts, our fossil fuels are going to play a large role in the in the in the load that we're going to have to provide, not only to West Virginians but to people all uh, across the country. So we have the opportunity in a time in this world uh, that we've discovered with the strife and the wars that are going on uh, in other countries that there's no greater and more important time than right now to have energy independence. It's a national security issue. And this is a time when this state, West Virginia, absolutely has a chance to lead this country to getting back to energy independence. We haven't had this opportunity. Of course, we've been powering the country for many, many, many years. But the opportunity that we have right now to continue to power the country and also set ourselves apart as the leader in getting us back to energy independence is a time that we certainly can't waste. 
My last question is this, and it's going to be a little lengthy, but bear with me here. West Virginia's, of course, been facing population loss for a long time, probably 50, 60 years or so. Uh, older West Virginians in the state are, are dying. Younger West Virginians are not having as many children. That seems to be a national trend right now. We've got major manufacturing projects uh, coming here. In fact, uh, Nucor just recently got its final permit so they can start getting some shovels into the ground. So that's certainly, yeah, certainly good news. But that's going to require workers, not just from inside the state, because I know that's certainly a concern if you're in union groups, but it is going to require workers coming from elsewhere to do that. And I know inward migration has ticked up in the state, so there are more people coming in, so that's certainly good. At the same time, WBGOP Chairwoman Elgin McArdle on a recent radio show, when asked about some of the social issues and culture war bills that have come out of the legislature, she said something along the lines of, quote, I don't think necessarily it excludes people that can go to California, they can go to New York, they can go to Chicago, if they want that kind of atmosphere to live in, go nuts, unquote. You're a young guy. I know you're running in the Republican primary. So whenever whoever wins that primary will be running for the votes of all West Virginians, ultimately. But we've got population shortage. Should we be encouraging people to move away simply for espousing different political views? Or can we afford to do that? How do we be welcoming to everybody when we certainly need the population here? With that said, how do we reconcile some of those issues with kind of differing political views? At this point, can we afford to turn in anybody away. It's an interesting time in West Virginia. As you mentioned, again, all those markers, whether it's, you know, budget surpluses or low unemployment, um, more and more people are choosing West Virginia as their as their home than they ever have before. And we have a in this sort of uh, in the last few years in this what I'll call sort of post uh, era of uh, people sort of moving around in remote work. West Virginia is becoming more and more attractive to many, many folks across the country. And so our natural beauty, our low cost of living, our low density housing, all of those things, whether you want to live on a mountain or you want to live on water, all of that sort of speaks for itself. From a policy perspective, we've started to put in uh, attraction tools uh, when you look at lowering the personal income tax and and all of the and uh, civil justice reform um, regulatory reform. I think that stuff speaks for itself, and that's why more people are starting to choose uh, the state of West Virginia. We have uh, heard time and again uh, that uh, West Virginians are uh, we're, we're fiscally conservative and we're culturally conservative. Um, I'm proud uh, to have been at you know the tip of the spear in the Judiciary Committee for delivering you know, the most conservative agenda in the history of the state of West Virginia, and it's yielding good results. So we'll let our actions uh, speak for themselves. And I think that uh, we'll continue to see great growth. But that's why I'm invigorated by this campaign. I'm excited. Uh, People in West Virginia are excited. That's an exciting thing. All of the people that we've been talking to all across the state are excited about, um, you know, are excited about their life, their children's life. I mean, it's, it's spring again. Uh, in West Virginia, and our best uh, days are no doubt in front of us. Delegate Moore Capito, thank you so much for giving me your time. Thank you, Stephen. Good to be with you. Special thanks to Delegate Moore Capito for being the first guest on the relaunch of Mountain State Views. Stay with us for next week. I'm not going to tell you which candidate for governor 
we'll have on next week. You'll just have to stay tuned for that and watch my social media, particularly Twitter or X or whatever it's going to be called next week. Stephen Adams WV on there. And I'm sure we will tease out who the next guest will be. But thank you very much. Please spread the word. I'd like to get more listeners for this. That way it's certainly worth my time and worth your time as well. So spread the word, write a review, give us five stars on whatever app you are listening to to get this podcast. But until next week, thank you for listening to Mountain State Views. This show was produced by me, Stephen Allen Adams. The music you're hearing is from Charleston-based punk rock band Jerks. Special thanks to Ogden Newspapers for providing support and doing this show. Until next week, enjoy the view.